open to the book of Psalms, and we will read Psalms 14 and 15. We often treat the Psalms as standalone units, and there is some truth to that, but yet they are organized in a particular way. And it's good to see the connection to the surrounding psalms. And we see that in Psalms 14 and 15 in the contrast between the two. And we'll note that a little bit in the sermon. So let's begin by reading Psalm 14 before getting to Psalm 15, which will be the text for this evening. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord, there were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Now the whole of Psalm 15 will be the text for this evening's sermon. I will not reread it. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart, he that backbiteth not with his tongue nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved." As far we read God's Word. Tonight's service is what we call a preparatory service. That is, tonight we are given instruction that is intended to help us when it, with a view to coming to the Lord's table next week, Sunday morning, to partake of the sacrament, that is, the Lord's Supper. And at the heart and center of such a preparatory service is the question, who is a worthy partaker of that heavenly meat and drink, of the sacrament, of the Lord's Supper, that is, who may come next week Sunday morning to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question before us. And we consider Psalm 15 this evening because it gives us the answer. 
And that Psalm 15 tells us the qualifications, the characteristics of one who may come into the presence of Jehovah God. And in setting forth those qualifications, the psalm points us unmistakably to our Savior Jesus Christ as the only one through whom we may come, the only way whereby we may approach the Father. And so with that in mind that we consider this psalm in connection with a preparatory service. Tonight we'll consider Psalm 15 using as our theme, who may dwell in the Lord's presence. Who may dwell in the Lord's presence. First we'll look at the required character. Second, at the only possibility. And third, at the thankful response. Psalm 15 has a very simple structure. Verse 1 asks a question, and the remainder of the psalm gives us the answer. And the question at the outset of the psalm is this, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And the psalmist David speaks of thy tabernacle. He is referring to that Old Testament tabernacle built in the days of Moses that was the place of worship for the people of Israel. And for the psalmist to speak of God's tabernacle is for him to speak of the place that symbolized God's dwelling in the midst of His people. That's the significance, the symbolism of that tent, of that building. We can say that confidently in light of Scripture. For example, in Exodus 29, when God gave Moses the command and the instructions concerning the building of the tabernacle, he told them this in Exodus 29, verse 42, this shall be a continual burnt offering through your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. And I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And it goes on to say, in verse 45, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. So that the clear symbolism of the tabernacle is that it was the place where God dwelt in the midst of His people, where He met them and spoke to them. So the psalmist David speaks of God's tabernacle. He also speaks of God's holy hill. Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? In the holy hill, holy hill here is clearly a reference to Mount Zion, that mountain in Jerusalem that would become the place of worship. And again, the the reason for mentioning God's holy hill is the same as this is the place where God dwelt in the midst of His people. And we see that when we look at the Psalms. Psalm 3, verse 4, for example, we read this. Psalm 3, verse 4. For I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and He heard me out of His holy hill. If God's hearing His people out of His holy hill, that means He, he dwells there. Same thing in Psalm 99, verse 9. Psalm 99, verse 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. If the people were coming to worship at this holy hill, it means God dwelt there in a unique, in a symbolic in a covenantal way. 
So clearly, the psalmist David has in view God's presence, his dwelling in the midst of his people. Now the question is, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? I trust you recognize the question is not, who is permitted to set up a cot in the holy place of the tabernacle? That's not the question. The question is not, who has the right to build a house on top of Mount Zion adjacent to the place of worship? That's not the point. But instead, when the psalmist asks this question, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He's asking, who has the right to come into the presence of Jehovah? Who is it that's allowed to come before Him to speak with Him? That's the question in view. And David asks this question as one who was deeply and profoundly mindful of Jehovah God Himself. And that comes out in the very wording here. This question is not addressed to a fellow church member, but it's addressed directly to God. Notice that the first word, Lord, who shall abide in Thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in Thy holy hill? This is not an abstract or philosophical question, but this is a question being put directly to Jehovah. So that it's clear that the psalmist David is mindful of Jehovah God. The the question is really this, Thou art Jehovah, the everlasting and the unchanging. I am that I am. Who may come and have covenantal fellowship with Thee? Thou art the God who is a consuming fire. Thou art so holy, so majestic, that even the angels who stand in Thy presence must cover their faces lest they be blinded by Thy majesty. What man therefore has the right to come and stand in Thy presence? Thou art the God who is high and lifted up. The transcendent One, the exalted One, who dwells in the heavens of heavens, who can ever approach Thy throne of grace? David is very aware of who Jehovah God is as he asks this question. And likely, he has good reason for having that deep sense of God's glory, His majesty, His greatness. And we say that in light of the possible historical circumstances that were the occasion for the writing of this psalm. If you look at the beginning of the psalm, the superscription, it simply reads, a psalm of David. So we're not given any sort of clue there as to when and why this psalm was written. But when we look at the psalm itself and the character of the psalm and the question being asked, it does bring to mind... David's attempt to relocate the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell on thy holy hill? That makes us think of the carrying of the Ark of the Covenant up to that holy hill. That may be the occasion for the writing of this psalm. And if it was, you can see where the question comes from. Because remember how disastrous 
that first attempt to relocate the ark was. David and his fellow Israelites did not follow the proper method for transporting the ark. And God then struck down Uzzah when he reached out his hand to try to stabilize the ark that moment. Such an instance, such an event would certainly lead one to ask with humility this question, Lord, who then shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who may dwell in thy holy hill? It's that question that we must consider as a congregation and as individuals. Which one of us may stand in the holy presence of Jehovah God without being consumed? Who here will be accepted of Him? So that the question, in a certain sense, is who may dwell in heaven? Because that really is the ultimate significance and symbolism of the tabernacle. God dwelling in the midst of His people. It points us to heaven itself. The place where God will dwell in our midst, where He will tabernacle among us. So that the question before us this evening is, who has the right to be a citizen of Zion? To be an inhabitant of the heavenly Jerusalem? It's that same question that we must ask ourselves when it comes to partaking of the Lord's Supper next week, Sunday morning. Because to come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ is to come and to sit down in the presence of our Savior, to dine with Him, to enjoy a covenantal meal with Him. The question for us is, who is worthy? That's the question. That's verse 1. And now the structure of the psalm is that the rest of the psalm gives us the answer to that question posed in verse 1. And when we look at the rest of the psalm, we find 12 characteristics, 12 traits of one who may come into the presence of Jehovah God. And Following Hebrew parallelism, we recognize there are six pairs here. And really, the first pair is the general statement of who may come, the overarching description, followed by five specifics. We'll simply number them one through six. So who may come? Well, first, only one who lives according to God's Word. And we say that in light of the first two things mentioned in verse 2, he that walketh uprightly and worketh worketh righteousness. He must walk uprightly. That is, he must walk blamelessly. He must be a man of integrity. So that he not only talks like a Christian, but he walks like a Christian. He's a Christian not only in word, but also in deed. And that's true of every aspect of his life, so that he walks uprightly consistently. In every aspect of his life, in every sphere and every station and calling that he's been given is to walk uprightly. 
He's to walk uprightly, whether he's in public or in private, whether he's surrounded by people or whether he's alone behind closed doors. What is more, the one who may come is the one who worketh righteousness. Worketh righteousness. He does what is right. And does what is right in God's own eyes. That is, he follows God's law. He lives according to his precepts so that these first two statements, he walks uprightly and worketh righteousness, are telling us that the one who may come to Jehovah's presence is the one who lives according to God's word. That first of all, and that from a, a general point of view. But now the psalm gives us some specifics. So that secondly, we see the one who may come into Jehovah's presence is the one who uses his tongue aright. We say that in light of the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. And speaketh the truth in his heart, he that backbiteth not with his tongue. Speaks the truth in his heart. And here we see a sharp contrast to the wicked man described in verse 1. He too says something in his heart, but Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So that the fool has in his heart a denial of God. He suppresses the truth concerning God. Because the godly man is one who speaks the truth in his heart. The truth about God. Who He is. The truth about the neighbor. And that truth is something He loves. It's in His heart. And it's out of that heart that the words of His mouth flow. And what is more? And because of that, He therefore detests all manner of lies, deceit, half-truths, and distortions. And what is more, He he backbites not with his tongue. That is, he doesn't slander with his lips. And we recognize how crucial this is because though the tongue is a little member, nevertheless it boasteth great things, can kindle a great fire. Though the tongue is not made of steel, it sure can cut and wound. So that our words are often more harmful than almost anything else we could do to one another. But the godly man is one who recognizes this. The one who can stand in God's presence refuses to backbite because he recognizes how inconsistent it is to use the same mouth both to bless God and to curse the neighbor. And that's what we see is when we take these two statements together, they're telling us the one who may come into God's presence is the one who governs his tongue, who uses his tongue to speak the truth. He uses it aright in the second place. Third, the one who may come into Jehovah's presence is the one who guards his neighbor from evil. That's the rest of verse 3 nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. He does no evil to the neighbor. That is, he's not going to harm the neighbor. He's not going to do wrong to the neighbor. So that not only does he refuse to use his tongue against his neighbor, he bridles his tongue, but he's also not going to do 
evil with his hands. He's not going to commit any act of murder. But instead, he does good to the neighbor. He shows love to the neighbor. Not only does he guard the neighbor in the sense of he himself is not going to do wrong to the neighbor, he guards his neighbor from the wrong that others would commit against the neighbor. Because the parallel statement here is that nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. And the idea of neighbor in the second statement is really his friend. That is, he's not going to tolerate evil being spoken about his fellow church member. He's not going to put up with the, the gossip and the slander that's spoken about his family. He's not going to allow others to gossip in his presence. That's the idea of the fact that he will not take up a reproach against his neighbor because he recognizes that if there's no one to hear the gossip, if there's no one to hear the slander and the backbiting, it will, the spreading of it will very quickly stop. And all of this shows us that the one who may come into Jehovah's presence is the one who guards his neighbor from evil. He himself will not commit evil against him and he prevents others from committing evil against the neighbor. That's our third characteristic. The psalm is answering the question, who may come into Jehovah's presence? Who may dwell in His midst and stand before Him? And the fourth thing it teaches us is that only such a one as only such a one who associates with the godly rather than the wicked, that fourth. And that's the first part of verse 4, the next set of statements. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, that is, held in contempt, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. First of all, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, that is, this man does not make friendship with the world. Because he recognizes that friendship with the world is enmity against God. This is the man who lives according to the truth of Psalm 1 verse 1, walking not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of the scornful. And this godly man refuses to be friends to such because he recognizes what's in their hearts. He recognizes their sinfulness, even as it's described back in verse 1 of chapter 14. 14 verse 1, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And this man says, Because they deny my God. Because they cast reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to associate myself in such a way as to pretend that everything's okay. But out of my love for Jehovah God, out of my love, out of my devotion for Him, I'm going to refuse the company of such individuals. Not only does he, is he no friend of the wicked, but he's a friend instead of the godly. That's the idea of that next line, but who honoreth them that fear the Lord. He's a friend. He's a companion to all those who fear the Lord. He dwells among the assembly of the saints. Exactly because he recognizes in them that same fear of the Lord that is they know the Lord. They have a high 
view of Jehovah God and seek to live according to His statutes. So this one who may come into Jehovah's presence is the one who shuns the wicked instead draws near unto the godly. Fifth, the one who may come into Jehovah's presence is the one who keeps His promises. He's a man of His word. Verse 4, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He swears to his own hurt. That is, when he swears an oath, he keeps it. No matter how great the cost, no matter what sacrifice is required in order to fulfill His Word. And though it's true as New Testament Christians, we swear relatively few O's because we recognize our yes must mean yes and our no must mean no. Nevertheless, whether we swear an oath or not, we're to be men and women of our Word who follow through. And that's the same idea when it adds He changes not. He's not going to change His mind. He's not going to change His Word. This man is not one who is constantly coming up with excuses for why all of a sudden I cannot do this or I cannot do that. This is someone who's not neglecting his responsibilities. He doesn't change. He's a man of His Word. He keeps His promises. So if we ask who may come and dwell in the presence of Jehovah God, Psalm 15 gives us an answer. It tells us, first of all, only one who lives according to God's Word. Second, one who speaks, who uses his tongue aright, speaking the truth. Third, one who guards his neighbor from evil. Fourth, he associates with the godly rather than the wicked. Fifth, he keeps his promises. He's a man of his Word. And sixth and finally... He cares for the poor and needy. He cares for the poor and needy. And that's a way of summarizing the very first part of verse 5. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward, really a bribe, against the innocent. On the one hand, he putteth not out his money to usury. This was in fact forbidden among the Old Testament Israelites. Deuteronomy 23 Verses 19 and 20 says, Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother. Usury of money, usury of vittles, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto the brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to. And when it speaks of usury, it's talking about charging large amounts of interest. And the Lord forbids this because the whole point of a loan in Old Testament Israel was to help the poor. To care for the needy. Whereas charging interest, charging usury, was enriching oneself at the expense of the poor. It was exploiting the needy. Thus God forbid it. And the godly man who will stand in the presence of Jehovah God will heed that word. He refuses to do this. He'll lend out his money, but he's not going to charge interest. He's not going to charge that usury. He's there to help the poor. And that's the same idea, overall idea, when it adds, nor taketh 
a reward that is a bribe against the innocent. A bribe is sinful for both the giver and the receiver. And this godly man that we've been describing is the one who's not going to allow the prospect of financial gain to influence him. He's concerned about justice, not about wealth. He cares for the poor and the needy. This is the one who may come into the presence of Jehovah God. This is the one who may be accepted of Him. So if you wish to come to the Lord's table, if you wish to approach this God, these are the characteristics that must be true of you and me. And the reality is it's only those who may come. Only these who may come, I should say. All others are excluded. So is this you? Is this me? To that question, the child of God humbly replies, No. That's not me. It's how I want to live by the grace of God. But it's not. And if we ask, well, is there a small beginning? Then the reply must be, that's not the question. It's not a matter of having these characteristics in part, because if one's going to stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God, he must meet these requirements perfectly in every single respect and at all times in his heart and life. And the child of God says, I cannot do that. I fail in that. And therefore, in and of myself, I have no right to approach Jehovah God. I have no standing before Him. Certainly, I will stand before Him. But if I must do that in and of myself, and by myself, the only thing that's going to come upon me is judgment. Because God has set forth a standard. His requirements. The, the character of one who may come into His presence. And I fall so far short That's true even though this isn't the fullness of what's required of us. Psalm 15 is just picking and choosing different aspects. The reality is there's even more to what God's Word, to what God's law requires of us. So that we're led to see that it's not just me, but the reality is there's no one, no mere man who can possibly meet these requirements, who fits this description, who can come into the presence of God Himself. And that's what we saw when we read Psalm 14, verse 3. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So of ourselves, it's impossible 
to abide in God's tabernacle and to dwell in his holy hill. So is there any possibility? The good news of the gospel is there is that there is. There's only one. And that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we be found righteous in Him. You see, this psalm points us to our Savior. And that this psalm finds its fulfillment in Him. So that when we look at the question, who may come into Jehovah's presence, and then we hear the answer, the, the required character, we're meant to see Christ in that. So that really what we have here in verses 2-5, through five, it is a description of Christ and His righteousness, His life of perfect obedience. It's worth taking the time to see that. Jesus Christ is the one who first of all lived according to God's Word. On the one hand, that means Jesus Christ walked uprightly. He walked blamelessly. He was a man of integrity in every aspect of His life. As a, as a son and a brother. As a carpenter and as a preacher. Whether He was eating or drinking, He walked uprightly. And he walked uprightly whether he was in public or in private. It did not matter if he was leading thousands in prayer or whether he was on top of, the mount, of a mountain praying by himself. It did not matter if he had a large people around him following him or if he was alone in the wilderness with only the devil to tempt him. Jesus Christ walked uprightly. On the other hand, that means He worked righteousness. All that He did was right. He kept the whole of God's law, not just parts of it, but every single aspect of God's calling. Jesus Christ is the One who lived according to God's Word. And that means secondly, Jesus Christ is the One who used His tongue right to speak the truth. On the one hand, that means he spoke the truth in his heart. And he did that as one who is truth. That's his very being. That's his very essence. He told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a part of who he is. And it was out of that heart of truth that he spoke so that every word that came from his lips was true. And at times, at times he would even call attention to that. He would say, verily, verily, that is truly, truly. But even when he did not add that, even when he did not preface his words, verily, verily, truly, truly, every single one of them was still truth. And in that connection, he did not backbite with his tongue. There was no falsehood coming from his lips. He's not trying to tear others down with his words. Instead, just the opposite was true. He was the object of backbiting and slander. 
He was the object of mockery and reproach. So that false witnesses were called against him. False accusations were brought against him. Jesus Christ is the one who used his tongue aright. Jesus Christ is also the one who thirdly guarded the neighbor from evil. And that he did no evil to his neighbor, he did good to his neighbor. He he did good to those who came to him. He showed himself to be the great physician who healed all manner of diseased, who cast out demons, so that rather than doing evil, he did good. And what is more, he did not take up a reproach against his neighbor. And you can think of the way in which Jesus Christ defended those who trusted in him, so that Though the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come and say, how dare you associate yourself with that individual? Well, what about the sins of this person? Jesus Christ would defend them. He guarded the neighbor from evil. Fourth, Jesus Christ is the one who associated not with the wicked, but with the godly. That is, Jesus Christ is the one in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, so that when those self-righteous, those proud, those arrogant Pharisees came to Him, He had no time for them. He came not to save those who have no need of a physician, but He came to seek and to save the lost. And in that connection, He associated Himself with the, he associated himself with the godly. That is, with those who are covered in His blood. So that he sat down and ate with publicans and sinners. He was gracious to harlots. He spoke kindly to the malefactor hanging on the cross next to him. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this word. And that's true in the fifth place in the fact that he kept his promise. He's a man of his word, and here especially. We see how this psalm points to him. And that Jesus Christ swore to his own hurt. Because in eternity, he swore, as it were, I will go down into the world to be born of a woman, to take upon myself the sin and guilt of my people. And I will pay it all. That was His Word, and He was true to that Word. Even though it hurt Him, even though He had to suffer, even though it required sacrifice, He kept His promise. Even though it meant a lifetime of suffering, even though it required laying down His life, He kept His Word. Even though it meant enduring the wrath of God against our sin. In that connection, he was the one who changed not. He did not change his plans, his course that led to the cross, even when the devil tempted him to take some other way. 
He did not change. Even when the thought of the cross was so frightening that he was that oppressed that the, the weight of the thought of the cross weighed so heavily that drops of blood were pressed out of him. He did not change even when his disciples abandoned him. He did not change even when Simon Peter denied him. But he kept going. He kept his word. He kept his promise. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 15. And that's true in that he too, he also cared for the poor and the needy. For he did not come to exploit the poor and needy, but just the opposite. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we who were poor might be made rich through his poverty. He came to save poor and needy sinners, those who have nothing to give to God. And he came to lift us up out of that spiritual poverty, to make us rich, to bless us with all heavenly, spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So that the whole point is that when we go back to the question in verse 1, Lord, who, may, who shall abide in Thy tabernacle? Who may dwell in Thy holy hill? The answer is Christ. And Christ alone. He's the only one who has these characteristics. He's the only one that meets these requirements because He's the one who came down from heaven itself, who came from God's dwelling place to live among men and to live according to God's Word, to keep it perfectly. And that means our only hope. The only possibility for us to come into God's presence and to be accepted is to come in and through Jesus Christ. And the good news of the Gospel is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, that righteousness, that obedience that we've just been describing of Christ's life It's that obedience that's imputed to us. That righteousness is made ours so really it's as if though we had fulfilled God's law entirely ourselves. And it's on the basis of that righteousness then that we may now come. That we may approach our God without fear of being consumed but with the confidence that He will receive us for Jesus' sake. That then is how we come to the table. Not as those who think we are worthy in and of ourselves, but as those who recognize our own unworthiness and seek instead the worthiness of Jesus Christ. The only ones who may come are those who are clothed with the wedding garments of His own righteousness.
And the value of a week of self-examination is that it reminds us of that. There's great value in the Reformed practice that has been handed down to us of taking a week to open up God's Word, especially His law, and to use it as a mirror to help see ourselves for who we are, to use it as a light to shine into the blackness of our hearts so that we see our sins. And thus we see our need for Christ. The point of a week of self-examination is not that I see my sins and then conclude, well, I need to do a little better here and a little better there and then I may come. But the point of this week is to see that no matter how much better I do in this area of my life or in that area of my life, I still do not have the right to come in and of myself. It's only for Christ's sake that I may stand in the presence of Jehovah God. That's the conclusion that we're led to see when we study this psalm and we examine ourselves. But it's when we see that. It's when we come believing that. That we may then come as worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. All the while praising God for the one possibility of abiding in His tabernacle and dwelling upon His holy hill. And it's when that's true of us that our thankful response will be that we seek to live according to His Word. That is, when we recognize our sinfulness, the fact that I fall short, and then by faith believe in Jesus Christ and His righteousness as the only ground of my salvation, That's going to fill the child of God with thankfulness, with gratitude. And in our thankfulness, in our gratitude, we then go back to the Word. We go back to this psalm with the desire to cultivate these characteristics in our own hearts and lives. This psalm, on the one hand, this psalm shows us our sinfulness. It exposes our need for Christ. But then having been led to the cross to seek forgiveness... We go back to the psalm a second time and say, I now want to live like that. I want to live like my Savior out of thankfulness for His saving work. And that is indeed a part of a proper examination of ourselves. And that comes out from the form for self-examination. The form for, self- the, form for the administration of the Lord's Supper, rather, found in the back of our Psalters on page 91. Page 91, we read this, the true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them. That was the first point of the sermon. Here's the standard. And every one of us must conclude, I fall short. But then that 
leads to the second thing. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. And notice this, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own. Yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. That was the second point of the sermon. Christ is the one who kept God's law perfectly. And it's that obedience that's given to us in faith. Now the form doesn't stop there, does it? Because the form adds, thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him. Those words are taken right from Psalm 15, verse 2. So may God use this word to guide us in this week of self-examination so that we see our own unworthiness and thus go to Christ, believing in Him, trusting in Him, not only for His, not only on not only looking to Him for the satisfaction of our sins and the justice of God through His atoning death, but looking to Him also for that obedience, that righteousness that becomes the ground of our salvation. And may God also work in our hearts a desire to cultivate these characteristics of a true worshiper of Jehovah God so that these things are more and more seen in our lives as evidences of our faith. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the good news of the Gospel. That although in and of ourselves there is no way we could enjoy sweet covenantal fellowship with Thee. Thou hast opened up the way through the saving work of Thy Son. For Thy Son is the way whereby we may come into Thy presence and speak with Thee and live with Thee and enjoy covenantal communion with Thee, our God. Blessed be Thy name, Father. Lay this word upon our hearts Guide us in a week of self-examination. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.